Welcome back, history fans. We have part two of imperialism and nationalism. So if you remember, part one, we talked about some of the reasons for taking over another country. So maybe it's every man needs hair, if you remember that one, economic, militaristic, nationalistic, and humanitarian. So we left off, we talked about how all these different ways to take over other countries and so forth, but now we're going to move into maybe some more specific examples. And the very first example I'm going to be talking about is the modernization of of Japan. So, um, first off, just to give you a little idea of the history of Japan, of like where we're picking up from, Japan, island nation, uh, they were very proud of their heritage and they didn't like outside influences. Um, actually, when people would come in, outside influences, meaning like, you know, boats of traders bringing goods and, you know, nationalistic ideas and culture from other countries, that's a big no-no for them. They would kill everyone on the boat except for one person. And they would send the boat back home and the one person who was alive would tell everyone, look, let's stay away from Japan. They kill people. Don't trade with them. And that accomplished the goal of keeping, you know, nationalism and other, you know, forms of imperialism out of their country. Well, now we're moving forward and America is, you know, kind of building up a little, um, you know, clout here. Um, so Commodore Matthew C. Perry uh, sailed into Tokyo Bay with a letter from the President of the United States demanding that they open their borders. And Japan decided that, hey, look, America has weapons and so forth, so maybe we shouldn't argue with them. And so this gave birth to a new period of time, 1868 to 1912, um, known as Meiji, M-E-I-J-I, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, uh, but it means enlightened rule. And the, co the country's motto during this time was, a rich country, a strong military. So... Yeah, they're going to um, kind of like um, military stuff during this time, and we'll talk about that when we get into some wars later on here. So anyhow, this my he, my ji, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, basically, I'm going to give you the kind of quick bullet points of this new way of doing things there. Their government, everyone was equal. Um, their businesses were very much uh, kind of westernized. Um, they used railroads, ports, bankings, telegraph, postal systems, all that kind of stuff that we see as more western. Um, as far as like social is concerned, um, they didn't have any kind of like social distinctions in the law. Um, you know, like think of it like feudalism, no more of that. There still was some relics and legacies of that, but technically on paper, it was gone. And as far as how women were treated in society, um, they more or less had secondary roles, so they weren't as, you know, kind of big time involved um, as we'll see later on just in the entire world for that matter. So, like I said, Japan's kind of, you know, strong country, strong military, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so rich country, strong military, sorry paraphrased a little too much there. Um, the first one we're going to talk about um, is the Sino-Japanese War, 1894, fought over control of Korea with China. And this showed the abilities of the newly industrialized uh, Japanese. So they had a very strong navy and army, and people are like, whoa, where do these guys come from? So, um, and, and part of it was they had sent all of their military generals all over the world to learn from all these other countries. Um, you know, like, well, how do you do military over here? How do you do military here? And they basically took the best from everywhere and kind of applied it to their own military style. And the outcome was they basically won the war and freed Korea, kind of, 
and they won some land for themselves as well, um, which we'll talk about here. So, so the war is not quite over yet. At least the Sino-Japanese War is, but um, the Russo-Japanese War is just starting, and this one is continuing um, fighting over the dominancy of Korea because you know now all of a sudden Russia comes in. Get it? Russo-Japanese War, Russia, Russo. Anyhow, um, so Japan has like a huge um, battle, a uh, naval battle, and like totally kicks Russia's butt. So Russia decides to send reinforcements, more navy, and they lose again. So Russia, this like old school imperial power, just got you know their butts kicked by uh, Japan. So we have to call in a third party to kind of mediate the peace talks here because we can't have wa uh, war keep going on. Because honestly, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Huh. Say it again. Okay, I'll stop singing, I promise. Okay, for now. Um, so... Teddy Roosevelt, the third party, the neutral party here from America, um, comes over and says, okay, look, peace talks, peace talks, peace talks. Um, no more. Well, war's over, but Japan kind of got uh, the you know, the short end of the stick on this one. They didn't, you know, they won the war, but they really didn't get much for it. However, what they did get was some respect or clout. People were like, whoa, let's not mess with Japan anymore. All right, so, anyhow, that's what's going on with Japan and a little bit with Korea and China and Russia. So we're going to move on. We're going to talk a little bit more about China now. So, um, you know, after their defeat by Japan, um, China's not doing the best. And we start to see Western influences seeping into the country. So all these different Western powers are trying to get control of China or at least different parts of China and control different areas and try to sell. Because remember, there's a lot of people in China. They want to sell a lot to China. So anyhow... The country was kind of divided up into different spheres of influence until uh, around 1900, the United States started uh, touting this policy of the open door policy, which allowed all countries the right to trade equally in China. And this is kind of, um, you know, maybe not the best policy, but it tried to, you know, kind of level the playing field. And, you know, we'll talk more about that one later on, I'm sure. Um, but anyhow, especially when we get into U.S. history. So, um, and actually some of the foreign control of parts of China were even still uh, held up until 1997, and that's when Hong Kong was finally released back to China from the British. All right, so moving on from China, let's talk about Africa. Now, Africa has huge amounts of natural resources. They are probably one of the most naturally rich um, continents uh, in the world, and the sad thing is they were exploited back in history and they're still exploited today for their natural resources. So um, they have all these natural resources, but they still get exploited. And it's because a lot of Africa, at least historically, was under indirect rule. And indirect rule is a type of European colonial policy in which the traditional local power structure, or at least part of it, is incorporated into the colonial administration structure. Basically, government without representation. You have people that do have some control within the country, but most of the structure is outside. Think of it like America. We were under indirect rule. We were controlled indirectly from someone who was far away. So even though we have control of our country, not really, we're still answering to someone who lives much farther away. And um, just to give you a kind of a specific example of some of the exploitation I mentioned earlier, uh, Congo, or today the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
Um, this place is exploited, was exploited, and still is to some degree, uh, for copper, rubber, and ivory um, trade within this area. And the villagers, as we talked about earlier, enslaving people, were forced to do this labor for little to no pay whatsoever. And the villagers were savagely beated or, uh, beaten or mutilated if they did not comply with what was asked of them. And during this time, we saw the Congo population greatly decrease. Um, so, all right, um, moving on, then let's talk uh, maybe some unification here. Um, and, you know, so we're going to talk about specific nation states and so forth. Um, so countries start to kind of come together. And the Concert of Europe, which was started after uh, Napoleon I, um, this was a grouping of Britain, Austria, Russia, and Prussia, which Prussia, not around anymore today. Uh, and this was, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this, this group. They are a super national group, and their goal is to protect the region from war. Think of it like modern day, like um, NATO or United Nations. And... Well, this concert of Europe, it sounded great on paper, but it fell apart as soon as we had the Crimean War. And it was because one of the members, Russia, tried to expand. And so the Ottoman Turks, uh, the French, and Great Britain all took up arms against Russia. Well, hey, Russia, guess what? Didn't do too well when you're ganged up on like that. And so now Austria is kind of left hanging out there all by himself. They don't have any really close allies, so they start to fall apart. So all these countries are not doing the best um, as far as uh, maintaining control and trying to work together. So um, just to kind of give you an idea of some unification. And we're going to finish up here with two last countries, um, and that is Italian unification and German unification, because prior to this point in history, they really weren't their own independent countries. So Italy used to be um, kind of like this peninsula of, still our peninsula, that was kind of dominated by Austria uh, for the most part. And like I said earlier, Austria kind of lost some allies. And all of Italy, we start to see um, different groups that start to have, you know, some, some nationalism, feeling part of something bigger, and maybe they want to form their own country. And so it's kind of fueled by nationalism. And you'll see that as a theme within Italian unification and also German unification. So um, these separated people that are in the Italian peninsula that start to feel maybe a little bit, you know, of a connection to something bigger, they need a ruler. They need someone to kind of bring them together and to kind of push out Austrian influences. And everyone starts looking to one of the biggest uh, groups in Italy, and that was the Kingdom of Piedmont or Sardinia. Sometimes you'll recede to it as both or, um, or one or the other kind of thing. And uh, the king of this Piedmont was Victor Emmanuel II. Now, just because he was the king, it doesn't mean he was really like, you know, the like most know-it-all, like best guy. He didn't, he didn't know exactly what was going on. However, his prime minister, this was the guy who was on the up and up. And that was Camillo di Cavour. He was an economic organizer, nationalist, and diplomat. And so Piedmont, under Victor Emmanuel II and Camillo di Cavour, they started to build up an army, but it just wasn't quite big enough to kick out Austria. So then they started to um, kind of look outside for maybe some help. So they allied with uh, Louis Napoleon III of France. Uh, this would have been Bonaparte's uh, uncle. So if you remember Napoleon from earlier. Well, 
conflict broke out and France and Piedmont or Italy were against Austria and Italy and France are the winners and this inspired nationalism throughout Italy so people starting to, are, are starting to come together so southern Italy specifically um, was kind of under a leader Giuseppe Garibaldi he was an Italian patriot and he had raised this giant army and had thousands of volunteers and this army was known of uh, known as the red shirts because they wore red shirts, their uniforms. And Garibaldi had gained some control of some land through military means, and he didn't really want to be, like, this big, like, leader or anything like that. He liked, you know, doing the military thing and nationalism, but he didn't want to be, like, a king. So he turned over everything that he had control, uh, basically, to Piedmont. So, in 1861, Italy proclaimed Victor Emmanuel II the king of Italy, but, dun-dun-dun, Venetia in the north um, is still under Austrian control at this time, and Rome was under Pope control and supported by the French. So, uh, later on, Venetia, Italy got after Austria um, lost in the uh, Prussian War, and also during the Franco-Prussian War, uh, the French withdrew support of Rome, and then in 1870, nine years after um, Victor Emmanuel II became the king of Italy, uh, the capital of Italy became Rome. So that kind of gives us the quick version of Rome. And finishing up here, we're going to talk about Germany and give you the history of this. Germany wasn't really around to speak of at this point that we're talking about, and I'll give you a little time here in just a second, 1830s, kind of think of it. Um, but anyhow, uh, Germany was divided up into many different, uh, like, little little tiny states, and Prussia was a big one, and so they were kind of the, the biggest one at the time, and they were under control of, by Wilhelm I. And the Germans kind of sought leadership from Prussia since they were the biggest one. And so Prussia, trying to get the ball rolling in the 1830s, made an economic union called Zollverein. And basically this eliminated trade barriers. Um, think of it as kind of like the modern-day European Union. It basically made it easier for everyone to trade with one another. Um, so common currency, that kind of those kind of trade things. So anyhow, like I said, Prussia was kind of like the big one. And so everyone's kind of looking to Prussia. Well, Prussia's a little worried. Um, they, you know, they're, they're feeling like if we want to get bigger and, and, and start, you know, bringing everyone together, we need to expand. We're not going to do anything kind of separate and small. We need to work together. So Zolverin was one of the first movements. And then the second one, we need to start taking over some more land or unifying everyone. And the guy for this job was kind of like Italy. It was the prime minister. And the prime minister of Prussia at this time was Count Otto von Bismarck. And he practiced this thing called real politic, which translates to realism. It's basically politics based on practical matters rather than on theories or ethics. So he said, look, this is how it works in real life, so that's the way we're going to do things. So he was very militaristic, so go figure, he started strengthening the Prussian army. And through a series of wars, he was able to organize most of the northern German states into the North Germany Confederation. However, the southern states um, were not exactly under their rule. They had different views. And remember, nationalism, not everyone has the same views. And one of the ways you get them to be part of you is to find you know, common interest. Because the southern states were Catholic, but Prussia was Protestant. So we're not having exactly a lot of views here. So the, what we've got to do next is we've got to get them to you know, maybe unite under something. And that was a common enemy. So... 
um, the South feared France. So somehow we got to make it look like France is this big bad guy and the only way to move forward in life is if the North Germany Confederation of Prussia and all of their little states work with the southern states to fight off this big bad nasty French um, conglomerate army and so forth. So Bismarck he very clever guy. He made up a fake letter that was supposedly from France, and it just was like threatening the Germans and telling them how bad the Germans were and so forth. And this fake letter, along with many disputes with the French, led to a war with France. And this was the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Well, Prussia dominates, and they win a lot of money and land. And towards the end of the war, the southern German uh, states said that they would join the North German Confederation. So then, in 1871, Germany fully united under Kaiser Wilhelm I. And Kaiser, um, the new title given to him, means emperor. So... um, That kind of finishes up Germany for you. And just to give you one last little bit here about um, Germany, industrialization grew dramatically within Germany. And the reason I'm kind of finishing with this is because this is going to lead us to World War I, so just a little foreshadowing. Um, And their, their industrialization even began to rival British imports within domestic markets. So meaning they, Germany was, people were buying German products and not British products, which is a issue for Britain. So Germany production was on the up and up, very organized and very technically efficient. They became the dominant economic power on the continent, second largest exporting nation after the United States. And furthermore, they started to see a move towards Germanization, uh, definition time, the intent of pressuring the non-German population to abandon their national identity or leave the country. So basically, you become German, or you get out. And this kind of goes with some of the things we said earlier. They eliminated non-German languages from public life and schools. So basically you cannot be another, um, you know, another from another nation within public or schools because they're getting rid of all the stuff that defines you as another nation. And often uh, Germanization policies um, kind of had a little resistance to them where people started doing homeschooling and tighter unity within minority groups. But we'll get more into that later on. So the reason why I wanted to leave with this is because our next unit, we're moving into World War I. And a lot of these policies and ways of doing things in pride is going to eventually lead to an all-out World War I or Great War at that time. So that's what we're going to finish up with, and I hope you enjoyed our history podcast for today. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening.